Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 18. Happy Holy Week to all you listening. In this episode, we will hear my conversation with Dr. John Borelli. Dr. Borelli is the Special Assistant to the President for Interreligious Initiatives at Georgetown University, and he previously served as the Associate Director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. In our conversation, Dr. Brelly talks about how being drafted into the Vietnam War set him on the path to studying comparative theology, the positive impact of ecumenical and interreligious dialogues on his own Catholic faith, and what he thinks will be important for engaging Nostra Aetate in the next 50 years. As always, you can leave comments for us on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you very, very much for listening. Here today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm speaking with John Borelli, who is currently at Georgetown University as a special assistant to the president for Dialogue. John, thank you for being here. Thank you. The, the first question I want to start with, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there, is how did you get involved in theology? How did you come to be a theologian? Well, it's something that I wanted to do when I was back in even high school, to be a theologian. Actually... I grew up in Oklahoma, and I went to a minor seminary in 1960 for high school, a diocesan-run seminary, and studied there. And so I was thinking of priesthood and being ordained, and I went to four years of high school and two years of college at that seminary. Well, during that time, the Second Vatican Council met. Mm. Uh, I was in grammar school when Pope John was elected and called the council, and I remember in our religion class in grammar school, the priests were teaching us our religion, and they talked about how extraordinary that a council has been called. There's only been 20 so far in church history. So that happened, and I followed it as a junior and senior in high school and in my first two years of college. And I could see how extraordinary that the church was becoming through these changes. I was following the liturgy because my home parish was very much alive with liturgical change, even Mm. back in the 50s. And so I thought the council in those days had a lot to do with liturgy, which it did in the first couple of years. But the other changes became gradually seeped in, the, the openness to other Christians, the ecumenical initiative that we took, and then to other religions, and the fact that lay people are called to holiness, the universal call Mm -hmm. to holiness in the dogmatic constitution on the church. In other words, I could be a theologian, and I didn't have to be ordained to be a theologian. Mm. If you look at Vatican II, most of the experts, the appointed experts who helped out, the theological experts, were ordained, Mm -hmm. or were brothers, uh, were not ordained, but were in religious orders. So very few lay people, but now lay people were called, and it seemed a greater challenge. I thought I got by a whole series of accidents to St. Louis University, a (laughs) Jesuit school, for my junior-senior year, and majored in philosophy. It had a very strong department in philosophy, and had a great experience and realized I loved academic life, and maybe that's what I wanted to do instead of being a parish priest. Mm. And so I came out. It wasn't a safe time to come out of seminary. We had a thing going on (laughs) then called the Vietnam War. Oh, sure. But I graduated in 1968, which was the height of everything. Yes, I graduated in the year of the assassinations of Martin Luther King 
and Bobby Kennedy and went on to Fordham in New York, another Jesuit university, for my doctorate, and I was actually thinking historical theology. So I didn't major in theology as an undergraduate. I wanted to major in other fields like philosophy, and I minored in history and English and theology. Wow. And then I went on to specialize in what I thought was historical theology. And I did a semester, and I did pretty well, and I enjoyed it. One reason is I prepared myself my senior year at St. Louis University, very conservative Jesuit, but very bright, taught a course in the fall, which he called Theology of Man in those days, Mm -hmm. Theological Anthropology. And I asked him, would he tutor me a course on faith so I could really understand what faith was about? And he agreed. And so for the spring semester, we read a book a week, and I would write a precy on the last book. And I really learned how to study, how to think, and how to discuss important points in theology. And that really prepared me, and it helped me do well that first semester. I was drafted then. Really? In in February of 69. There were no deferments from the draft unless you were in medical school or you were unfit for duty or you were in the National Guard. It was one of the the one war our country fought where you could enter the National Guard and not go to war. (laughs) The country had had a bad experience with the Korean conflict when they called up National Guard units and Reserve Army units and used them in the conflict. And so we did not do that in Vietnam. So a lot of people in influence, Senator Quayle of Indiana Mm -hmm. was in the Indiana National Guard, I know some a president that was in the Texas Air National mm-hmm. Guard. But I took my chances and was drafted in February of 69. I tested in basic training very well for language aptitude, and so I went to Vietnamese language school hmm. for 30 weeks. And then intelligence training and was sent to Vietnam as an interrogator of prisoners of war. Wow. But I worked with Vietnamese counterparts, and they were a lot of them were Buddhists, and I was in a Buddhist country, and I could read Vietnamese and speak it. Went to a lot of Buddhist sites, and I got back in '71, back to Fordham, just away two years. Went back into second semester graduate school, huh. but was very much attracted to this one area. We had historical theology, but history of religions and theology, that it was an even more opportune field given the, the, the shrinkage of the world, our religious diversity increasing in the United States, and the need to address religious diversity. And knowing full well that there were religious sub-issues in the Vietnam conflict itself mm-hmm. between Catholics and Buddhists. And so I then specialized in history of religions and theology, getting a straight master's and then specialized and went on to study some Chinese and as well as Sanskrit and actually worked in Hinduism more than anything else and finished up in 1976 with my doctorate. So that's that's the long story <laughs> of migration from seminary education to historical theology, which is what Karl Rahner and others were doing at Vatican II, mm-hmm. great theologians, to history of religions and theology. And the the genius we had at Fordham who was running that program is Thomas Berry, B-E-R-R-Y. Now, if you search him for books, you'll find that he's writing on religion and ecology. 
and he has a whole series of books that he blossomed into out of his field of cultural history into the ecological age, the earth, understanding the ecological crisis. He passed away some years ago, but he moved from the study of Asian religions into the study of Native American religions into the study of the ecology crisis and became one of the great one of the great visionaries uh, mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church, and you can see the roots of Thomas Berry in Pope Francis' encyclical Laudato Si. Uh, okay, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it really was the experience of Vietnam that got you interested in in a religious dialogue, and yes, did, did that then translate into ecumenical interests that you have as well, or or what was sort of? Well, I always had ecumenical interests growing up in Oklahoma, where we were two percent Catholic and surrounded okay. by a lot of Baptists, and when I had high school summer jobs, I always had to defend the faith against Baptists and so forth. But I had a I had always had a positive association with other Christians. But what happened was I got my degree, and my wife and I were both in graduate school when we were married. We met at St. Louis University, and we were married when I got home from Vietnam. And so we took turns getting our doctorates. I got mine first, and then I was able to find a job in New York, not far from where we lived, at the College of Mount St. Vincent, where I ran religious studies, and she could return to New York University for her doctorate in psychiatric mental health Mm. nursing. And teaching at the College of Mount St. Vincent, we had a cooperative program with Manhattan College run by the Christian Brothers, and one of the Christian Brothers was on the Ecumenical Commission of the Archdiocese of New York and recommended me to come on board. As a layperson, they needed new young laypeople. So I was invited, and I thought, well, why me? I'm really in, am interested in interreligious dialogue. And the chairman, the rector of St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, Monsignor James Rigney, said, oh, come on board. We'll get to that, but we just want to have some new life. So I joined and got involved in ecumenical dialogue, and it just so happened that uh, someone who had been at Vatican II staffing the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity and helping write those documents, came back to New York, to Fordham, to finish up a program that was there that needed to be decided on whether to keep it going or not. Father John Long, a real specialist in ecumenical affairs, and he started tutoring me, because he was on the commission, in Vatican II and ecumenism. Before long, the Archdiocese had asked me to write a column in their newsletter uh, for priests on ecumenism, so I was doing that, and Father Long was helping me, and I was participating in local ecumenical dialogues we had with Orthodox Christians, with Episcopalians, with Lutherans, so I was gaining that, and eventually I got around to, with some Muslim friends, starting the Catholic-Muslim Dialogue of New York. Mm -hmm. So all of those things were going on, plus some networking with other dioceses in the country, and before long, we convinced the U.S. bishops to create a position to implement Vatican II's decree Nostra Aetate for interreligious dialogue. There already was at the bishops' conference positions in ecumenism and in Jewish relations, but no one had ever worked directly in interreligious relations. And so that job was created, and my wife and I moved our family from New York to Washington 
1987 when I began working at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So I shifted. I thought I was going to do scholarly work <laughs> on Asian religions, and dialogue is always part of methodology. You study the material in its historical context. You learn, you learn what this means in the historical context of this text or mm -hmm. this conversation took place, and then you begin doing comparative work out of your own understanding with other traditions, and you always go back and test with the, with the owners of that tradition, with Hindus or with Buddhists. Is this what, does this make sense? And, and dialogue was always part of my methodology. And so it was natural for me just to kind of move into interreligious dialogue. The bishops, though, hired me to expand dialogue with Muslims and increasing population in the mm -hmm. U.S. And my training really was in Hinduism and Buddhism and Chinese religions. I did take, I was a fellow, a visiting fellow at New York University for one semester with the Humanities Fellowship and National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. So that was my first exposure to the study of Islam. And I learned a great deal in dialogue. But I did that, plus I still did some ecumenical work because we had a unified office. Mm. In Rome, at the Vatican, they keep interreligious separate from Christian unity, ecumenical dialogue, and they keep Jewish relations separate from both. Huh. But in the United States, we had all three integrated together that my colleague doing Jewish relations staffed an ecumenical dialogue and myself doing Islamic and other interreligious relations staffed an ecumenical dialogue. So I stayed up on these issues and have pretty much through my career. And it, it was very, I thought I was going to read a Sanskrit and Chinese text of a Buddhist text <laughs> and come to understand it. But I did less and less of that, did less and less work in Sanskrit, and did a lot of comparative and ecumenical and interreligious writing. And I have no regrets. Just kind of followed where my career took me. Mm -hmm. Where and you were I, most useful and helpful. That's and, right. Yeah. Six, 16 years at the Bishop's Conference. Uh, they were great times. I was a consultant to the Vatican, so I got into some international dialogues and settings and learned perspectives from around the world. We're so parochial if we confine ourselves to the U.S. Mm -hmm. We're parochial if we confine, our, confine ourselves to the English-speaking tradition. And so I'm, it, I've been blessed by that kind of expansion. And then from there, uh, I migrated to Georgetown University, where the president of the university wanted to promote interreligious understanding as an Ignatian, from Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, mm -hmm. as an Ignatian value. And so that's what I've been doing at Georgetown, working there, teaching a few courses, but having conferences and setting up programs and keeping us connected to what's going on in interreligious dialogue. Is that is that program, in terms of uh, an Ignatian program, is that situated under sort of the rubric of discernment? Is, is that sort of how he... How, President Joya understands that, or he considers it a a, a separate value, okay. like men and women for others, mm -hmm. and cura personalis, the the care of the whole person. These are these are specific identified Ignatian values. This mm -hmm. means the 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 willingness to engage others where they are, to listen to mm -hmm. them, to yeah. hear what they have to say, to try to appreciate what they have to say before you criticize it and to engage yourself with that point of view even when it contradicts what you believe 
So that's what interreligious understanding is about. It's, it's, it's being able to understand across traditions, being able to empathize with another person's position and to see through their eyes. This sort of so this is more of a comparative theology model than say like a religious studies model of, of yes. thinking about these questions, right? How would you see the, the significance of the development of that model in the last thirty or forty years? Well, I think it's quite significant. It's still still to be catch on. We were doing comparative theology at Fordham, but we didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. We called it history of religions and theology. But essentially, for my thesis, I translated thirty pages of a Sanskrit text by a Vedanta theologian, and I compared him with other Vedanta theologians. And then from there, I took the model that came out of that Vedanta tradition and read Bonaventure, the 13th century, 14th century, 13th century Franciscan, and um, Nicholas of Cusa mm. from the, uh, the 15th century, and others. So I was doing comparative theology, seeing how what's operative in the Vedanta tradition, something similar is operative in the Catholic tradition. And so I was, by reading the text together, I was gaining insight across both sides. So we were doing that, but we called it History of Religions and Theology. And Frank (laughs) Clooney and Jim Fredericks, very good friends, have developed the comparative theology model, Mm -hmm. which uh, I agree with and I think it's a way to go. We have a long ways to go uh, because this is still not mainstream. There's so many people who feel they can do their work without consulting other traditions. But in fact, everybody's reading across traditions Mm -hmm. these days. And it's very important, I think, to be knowledgeable of at least one more tradition. And this is critically important in understanding the Christian faith as it emerges out of Judaism because there's a whole new area developing of study called the parting of the ways. And this gradual Mm. parting of Christianity from Judaism did not take place overnight, did not take place in 10 years or just in the first century, the time of Jesus and the apostolic church, but went on in various places in the Mediterranean for a long time until it was really sorted out and may very well have been when the Christians were free and in power in the 4th and 5th century, that the distinction, the absolute distinction between Christianity and Judaism developed because Christians were in power. So we, we got a, it's a whole area that helps us better understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, of course, one of the great enhancements is that we have a whole number of Jewish scholars of the New Testament and they produced the Jewish annotated New Testament, yeah. which is due to have a new edition, I've been told by some of the participants. So that's great. I've and used that class a lot with the New Testament courses I've taught. It's uh, very helpful to get yeah. their perspective. Yeah. And I, I await the day when we have Muslim scholars of the New Testament. Hmm. Um, but I think that day is coming. Although, to answer the questions of the Quran and so forth, I think we need in Catholic tradition a better theology of revelation Mm. we really need to re-understand our theology of revelation along the lines of god's continuing revelation that with christ god did not stop revealing through word and spirit i think contextually this continued though 
in a particular way in the person of Jesus, the word and the spirit came to be revealed in his person. And that's what Christian faith is about in the person of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that God's revelation in word and spirit did not cease acting at that time among mm-hmm. other peoples. Now we got to I mean, certainly, if nothing else, you've got all the New Testament texts that are coming after Jesus that are yes. in, interpreting and, and carrying on that aspect of Revelation. So. Some of them into the second century. Uh, some of the theories about 2 Peter, that mm-hmm. it really is quite quite late. So, whereas we have a council that said Revelation ended with the death of the last apostle, well, that means we've got to do a song and dance about the, <laughs> the apostles' disciples keeping alive his mm-hmm. vision and so forth. So, and there's more more to happen there. We need scripture scholars. We need historical theologians. We need people to address the parting of the ways, to learn Hebrew and Greek. We need people to do the comparative theology work with Islam, to learn Arabic, and encourage Muslims to learn Greek and so forth, to read our texts. We've got a lot of work to do. It's an exciting field. I know one struggle, I mean, I went to Boston College, and they have a comparative theology program, and I know one struggle some of my friends coming out of that have faced is when they look at job postings, it's there are job postings for Bible, there are job postings for Christian theology, there are job postings for Islam. And you'd think if someone could pitch themselves as, I can do Islam and I can do Christianity, that would make them a great sell because you're getting kind of a two right. for one. But in a lot of cases, there's kind of a suspicion that the same kind of general interdisciplinary suspicion that. Well, if you're if you have a foot in both places, you can't do either one terribly well. That's right. And and this seems to be one of the one of the obstacles to you know acceptance or or the expansion of comparative theology. That's right. That's right. Well, it's true in my day too that I would I talked about my method as a history of religions method, and I was challenged once at Notre Dame. Well, you could apply that to Christianity, and I said, yeah, but here. I mean, you want one person to teach world religions, and you're all teaching Christianity. <laughs> so, so yes, in the larger departments where there are very specific positions, indeed, comparative theology doesn't seem to fit. In the smaller departments where you need multivalent people, mm. they're happy to have somebody who can do both traditions. So... It's a tough sell. We now have a doctoral program at uh, Georgetown. Mm -hmm. We take in four candidates a year. Generally, we would like for them to already have their MA, although we've made a couple of exceptions recently. But come in with an MA in one field and to study another tradition. It's called theology and religious pluralism, but essentially it's a comparative Mm -hmm. theology. Now, the current dean of studies of the pontifical institute for arabic and islamic studies in rome is a graduate of that really program he's oh that's a, wonderful he's a missionary of africa a young woman who was one of the first to graduate in that program she got her master's at st louis uh, university she's now teaching at the jesuit school in kansas city her hometown where she wanted to mm-hmm. to settle with her family in Rockhurst uh, College. Mm-hmm. So people are getting positions uh, from that. One of our, We had one Jesuit. He's now teaching at the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. So people are getting positions. Uh, you've got to accommodate yourself to the needs of students. 
you do need to do some kind of introductory course to help students understand that there's a lot to study when it comes to religious matters. And so you need a methodology of approach. This is not religious instruction, although you learn a great deal about your faith, but this is the study of religion mm-hmm. and religious matters. That actually raises a question I, I'm just sort of curious about. You you spend you know decades now working with other traditions, both other religious traditions, other Christian traditions, in teaching and research, and your work with the, the bishops, and your work at Georgetown. Just, I'm just curious. How has work with other religious faiths, other religious traditions, shaped your own experience of being <laughs> Catholic? Oh, it's shaped it a great deal. When you say decades, that takes the wind out of me. But <laughs> I guess the bicentennial year, 1976, when I got my doctorate, is a long time ago. I liked to, used to say to students in class back when my wife and I backpacked Europe in 1973, and they look at me like I knew <laughs> knew Hemingway in Paris a, a great deal because, for example, in my conversations with Muslims over the years, I've come to realize that our, lang- our Trinitarian language is at times not very good. The Trinity is a mystery, and it cannot be fully explained. But there are times we talk about God as if God were three realities or three three mm-hmm. beings, and that's offensive, and that fits. that's a good point, that we're not talking about three gods. So that's helped very much. My study of, of Hinduism and dialogue with Hindus has, has helped me understand the richness of diversity within each of our traditions and the variety of models that can be available for doing theology and for understanding what the faith is all about. Especially, you know, in dialogues, our dialogues that we always had at the conference and at other times, we always had a spiritual dimension. So in many of the dialogues with Buddhists, we would get up and do an hour of quiet sitting, each in our own way, mm-hmm. for an hour, you know, before the dialogue would begin. You'd say, oh, that's got well, it's a great experience. Or we would attend Muslim prayers as they would pray, and we would sit meditating, and then we would invite them to a Vespers service, a service of prayer, choosing psalms and so forth that would be fitting in such a setting. So this uh, this dimension was always important, and the kind of depth that you gain studying the spiritual practices of, of Hinduism. So the theologian I worked on was a great yogi and a great commentator on yoga, Vijnana Bhikshu, the fullest commentary on the comment, the basic commentary of Vyasa on the Yoga Sutras. So I always taught yoga and meditation, which students liked and flocked yeah. in and wondered if there was a dress code. And I'd say, <laughs> no, we, we, we will do 10 minutes of quiet sitting, and I would teach various breathing techniques and focusing exercises and everything. They really liked that. They loved the 10 minutes start to class. But we read texts. We read the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, but the cloud of unknowing. When you read the cloud of unknowing, a uh, 15th century, is it, Uh, English mystical tech, anonymous, uh, but it's really very apophatic. It fits. It's a good comparative text with the Yoga Sutras to see the, the comparisons and the diversities in the two texts. Or you read Ignatius, a great book, uh, Spiritual Workouts by Muldoon on uh, mm. on the spiritual exercises mm-hmm. of Ignatius. 
people really like the imaginative exercises of the of the Ignatian practice fits very much like Tibetan Buddhism so these kinds of things you learn a great deal of depth in your own tradition I think um, uh, it's greatly influenced how I see things in my Catholic faith and to have somebody now as Pope who writes the way he does go back and read Evangelii Gaudium his uh, his apostolic letter on apostolic letter is it exhortation exhortation on the joy of the gospel and just look at those sections on other religions and see how he writes in a very sympathetic way that comes from his friendship his interreligious friendship with Rabbi Skorka and his friend Mr. Abed the Muslim the the friends that he took with him to the Holy Land when he went Mm -hmm. but these folks that he would visit and he would attend and attend their prayer services and incorporated that in his life he appreciates them for who they are and so that's just terrific and the enhancement the accompaniment the spiritual accompaniment that we now are emphasizing as his practice yeah the formal dialogues are important are seated around the table but the dialogue of life is so much more important than the dialogue of spiritual practice Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah I know um, we're coming around the, the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate, and I know you're giving a lot of lectures on this recently. And I know you've been working with Thomas Stransky on looking at the genesis and origins of Nostra Aetate. Actually, what, a question I have is, what, what do you see as the future for Nostra Aetate, the, the next 50 years? <laughs> you know, what, do, what do you see coming next, or what are the, what are the I think you talk about unanswered questions, what are the unanswered questions that we need to wrestle with Looking sure. forward on this document. Sure. Thomas Stransky was 30 years old in 1960 when he was invited on board the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity. So he worked on those texts of the Secretariat, including Nostra Aetate, all through Vatican II, and stayed on for a few more years at the Secretariat until 1970 when he was elected president of his order. Then he ended up in Jerusalem at Tantur Ecumenical Center and it was rector there and then retired there, and we brought him to Georgetown in 2006. Now, I met him way back in 1981 as I was beginning the transition from academic life into church service, and so we renewed our friendship, and we've been working on this task. When I was in theology after Vatican II, professors would say things like, it takes 100 years to receive a council. I don't know if anybody ever said that, originally. (laughs) I've tried to find it. It might be in John Henry Newman, but I haven't found it. And, but at the same time, and it would make me angry. You mean in my lifetime, I won't get the full fruition of this extraordinary event called Vatican II. But in fact, I began to see the wisdom of that. And a rather elderly Jesuit we have at Georgetown, he's in his 90s, Ladislas Orsi, who's Mm -hmm. written a great deal on reception of councils says that we really need a transition to a generation who have no connections at all to the council except that it was an event of their Catholic past. I recall what the church was like before Vatican II and the changes of the council, and I've known and worked with the pioneers that were there and have read the texts and everything. So it's the generation after me that will receive the council in a new way, Massimo Fagioli, 
in a book on the battle for interpretation of Vatican II, makes the point in the first 50 years after a council, the, effect, the impact of the council is, is at times overvalued. Mm. But in the second 50 years, it's often undervalued. Mm. And so the reception of Vatican II is going to go through. There's no way the church today is very much part of Vatican II. Many of the things we do as Catholics are all the result of Vatican II. It's what formed us into doing what we're doing. To pretend as though it didn't exist or to pretend as though it has caused a weakening of the church is just nonsense. If anything, if we had not had the Reform Council and the updating to the modern world, the Catholic Church would be even less significant in Europe and the United States today, and maybe in other parts of the world too. Thank heavens for it. It did not lead to the culture wars. What led to that was a failure to implement its policy of engagement, Hmm. of engagement with the world around us. You don't flee that world. You engage it. And you hold fast to your principles, but you engage it and realize that you begin to understand achievements in human knowledge and everything and how we've had to adjust Scripture and our understanding of Scripture and interpretation of Scripture, gaining new methods from from various scientific uh, discoveries and social sciences like archaeology as well as astronomy and everything else. (laughs) And that's helped us understand Scripture. We have a better grasp of Scripture than ever. So I, I think in the next 50 years, we're going to take on all new questions. Maybe we'll continue, we'll continue to grapple with the, the fact of the Shoah, mm-hmm. and a new generation will look upon this and will wonder how we could even have lived in a church that had such anti-Jewish teaching. But in fact, it was a reality, and it was the, the way the faith was framed and so that will have to come to reckon with. I think Nostra Aetate encourages Catholics to preserve the spiritual and moral and social values that are found in other traditions. But it doesn't say how to do that. Mm. And so we're continuing to embrace that. What does it mean? What does spiritual companionship mean mm-hmm. to accompany one another spiritually? Some people feel like, you know, that if you're too close to Buddhist and take up their practice, that you've relativized the faith, but you haven't. I've not seen any Catholic lose their faith through interfaith dialogue. In fact, it's grown stronger because it forces you to bring it up and to, and to engage it and to be who you are and to articulate it in such a way and to inquire better into what your faith is about. So I think uh, we'll find better ways of spiritual accompaniment. Um, we, as Catholics, should not be arrogant about this, but we took on the anti-Jewish orientation of how we presented what it meant to be Catholic, mm-hmm. to be Christian. To be Christian, we would say it in such a way that we had anti-Jewish elements. We took that on, and we've addressed that, and we're learning to live with that. We shouldn't be arrogant about this because it went on so long. But perhaps other traditions, for example, Judaism, will be willing to go through that same kind of confrontation on how they present their faith and that we can begin to talk on a new level together, each of us somewhat humbled in our negativity towards each other. That's, that's key, 
and how we frame the faith. We have a long ways to go. It says, uh, Nostra Tati in the uh, paragraph on Islam says, calls on all people to forget the past and move on. Well, we don't forget the past. We got to heal memory, mm-hmm. the healing of memory. And how do we go through that? We're developing more and more ways of healing memory. And so we've, we're developing ways of preserving and living uh, our faith in a pluralistic context that's enhanced by the practices of our neighbors around us. And our faith continues to grow and grow strong because this institution called church is willing to adapt and to change as it goes along, which Vatican II was certainly an ideal example Mm -hmm. of how a church can update itself to the modern world, can address and engage that world, can recover its resources in a creative way in the present, and can reach out to others. Mm-hmm. So I, I know you have a hard out coming soon. So I have, I have two last kind of quicker sure. questions, and then I have a little questionnaire. One is that do you still get to be in the classroom, or do you miss being in the classroom? <laughs> or I did teach at Georgetown up until the fall term of 2013, and in the spring of 2014, we were doing a major program with the Pontifical Council for Culture. We had a what they called a courtyard of the Gentiles. We had a program <laughs> on faith, culture, and the common good, where you engage believers as well as those who do not make reference to faith in their lives, but are concerned about the same issues we are. So we did this program, and I was the lead on that, and so I really couldn't teach as well as do that. And I didn't go back to teaching. I put down the chalk. I was 68 years old at the time, and I thought, <laughs> Maybe it's about time to let others. I miss it. Um, I always had about 30 students for the one course I taught about. I taught a different course each term, but I had about 30 students, and I do miss that very much so, and I miss the engagement and the richness. I do get to work with graduate students on some projects, Mm. so get to know them, and that's Mm -hmm. fun. But, you know, I've got to turn it over to others, let uh, younger scholars get their jobs (laughs) (laughs) and uh, along those lines what advice would you have for younger or upcoming theologians well what would I have (laughs) (laughs) well what you imagine you'll be doing while you're in graduate school may not be what you will be doing in 20 Mm. 30 40 years so be prepared I was very fortunate to be able to teach my last year at Fordham full-time But the Jesuits at Fordham thought history of religions and interreligious dialogue was a fad and not really going to develop and didn't retain me. They would have had to create a new line. So I went to another place and fortunately was able to get a job. The last two jobs I've had, I really have created. I helped create Mm. the job at the Bishop's Conference. And in conversation with Dr. DeJoya, the president of Georgetown, I forged this position at Georgetown University. He offered me the opportunity to come and see what happens, and I was able to develop. Fortunately, I knew some people at Georgetown already because it's in Washington, and I was working with them and had for, for a long time. So it was, I was fortunate, and it's given me an opportunity really to do some of my best work, I think. Mm. So know that 
keep your eyes open for creating that next step. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to find that great place that's well-located and is going to give you a fine life and raise a family and a place to retire. But big changes are coming in higher education. Yeah. And so it's the middle-level universities that I think are in the most difficult situation. Small colleges may end up becoming like community colleges where people go for their first year, perhaps, or maybe Mm -hmm. a combination of high school, last year of high school, first year of college, in prep for maybe a two- or three-year college experience where you really focus on what you're all about. I think that's coming, plus the electronic era, the online courses, mm-hmm. um, the somehow there's big shifts coming. And those universities that are positioned as global universities, I think, will have a better go of it. The middle-level universities that are located in places where they draw locally but and are, have a well tradition are going to have to somehow adapt, yeah. maybe connect. Now, you've got Benedictine universities. Maybe there will be a network of Benedictine universities that will find a way to connect as, say, the network of Jesuit universities. Mm-hmm. There's 28 of those. So changes are coming, and we got to be able to adapt. Academics, believe it or not, have the most difficulty adapting to change. <laughs> what? I, I want to have my Fridays off. Or <laughs> what? I can't teach 9 to 11 on Monday. You know, I always do that. So we got to be able to adapt and to see, uh, believe me, when I got out of academia for 16 years and worked a real job for 12 years, 12 <laughs> months of the year, and always felt in June like there's something wrong. I'm working too hard. What's going on here? I began to see, I began to see a very different perspective. Now, sure. I'm not, not complaining, but adaption. We're, uh, there's mm-hmm. be prepared to adapt and be prepared to be creative with the directions that, uh, that we're, the, the education is going in. So to, to finish up at Daily Theology, we have a short little questionnaire, five less serious questions. Okay. So first off, are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? I'm a coffee drinker. All, 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 all day, every day? I drink coffee all day, every day. I do like tea once in a while, and certainly they do it upright in England. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you were, uh, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? If I could be a patron saint, what would I be the patron saint of? Oh, wow. I don't know. Uh, I'd like to be maybe of grandpas. Mm. Since I'm a grandfather now with three grandsons, I could be the patron saint of of interreligious dialogue, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Uh, This one, you can go either way. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? (laughs) Oh, well, here's my short-term memory is beginning to fade, but <laughs> wherever you go, I will follow. I that that one okay. um that's one of my favorite. Brings me to tears every time. Hmm. So, and it's uh it's very well adapted to the presence of Christ in our life with the disciples and everything, but it's a love song too. Mm-hmm. And I like that one very much. Okay. And then are you a TV watcher? Do you have a, a TV show you're currently hot on? Or? <laughs> I'm a TV watcher. Is there? A, I, I don't have a particular TV. I've had in my life over time different TV shows that I 
got stuck on and had to watch, and my wife the same way. But I do like to I do like to turn in to uh, to tune into uh, Colbert now. Mm-hmm. I like to watch college football on Saturdays. Who's, who's your team? Well, I grew up in Oklahoma, okay. and my parents went to the University of Oklahoma. Uh, I didn't, but I've always kind of followed Oklahoma football. Right. You know. And then last question. If you were to have been made Pope, what would your papal name be? <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. What would be my papal name? Um, you don't have to get the number right or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I would be inclined to take John, but, you know, there's so many numbers now. The 25th, <laughs> John the 25th. That's not bad, though. John the 25th. Stephen? Mm. There's one that hasn't. Of course, he was an early martyr, so might might portend bad things. Haven't really thought about it. Yeah, but yeah, Stephen hasn't been hit for a while. Yeah, on the, the papal yeah. train. So, all right, Doctor Borelli, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Thank so. you. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by DailyTheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 